Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Uh, sleep, apparently. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, everyone. What a joy it is to be together on the Lord's Day, celebrating the goodness of our Savior. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, go ahead and take it out and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Last week, we began the, the holiday season by looking at what we're to be thankful for. We kind of had a post-Thanksgiving sermon looking at what we're to be thankful for, grateful for, and joyful in. And uh, we saw that in James chapter 1. We're to be thankful for trials, which is a very challenging thing, but at the end of the day, it was very encouraging, convicting. Many of you were uh, so uh, encouraging about how the Word of God had impacted your heart last week, and I praise God for that. And for the remainder of the calendar year, I just want us to meditate on Christmas. I want us to take the four uh, weeks that we have, the four Sundays that we have together in the month of December and meditate on Christmas. I want to meditate on the glory of Jesus being born as a human. That is a miracle of miracles. I want to meditate on our Savior lowly in a manger being born for us. I want to look at what that day changes today. I want to look at how that day impacts the way that we live our lives today. I want us to be absolutely undone by the grace of seeing that baby in a manger on our behalf. And I want us to think about how we can be like the shepherds who hear the good news and they go and they tell the world. That's where I want us to begin this morning. I want us to look at how we can speak of Jesus this Christmas season and beyond. I want us to look at the question of how we can be faithful ambassadors of Christ and share his glory with those around us. What must we be if we're going to do that well? And we've uh, looked at that over the course of this last semester, right? We've looked in studying evangelism and discipleship. This sermon is really just going to be an exclamation point on everything that we studied this last semester. What must we be? What must our message be? And how are we to share the message of Christ with those around us? If I were to ask you, who in the Bible, in the life of Christ, during the time of his earthly ministry, who is the greatest example of a faithful evangelist? Who would you say? The greatest example, the greatest person in the Bible during Jesus' lifetime to speak of him and to tell others about him. We ask this question a lot when it comes to sports. There's even an acronym for it. Who is the GOAT, right? Who is the GOAT? Who is the greatest of all time? Who is the greatest quarterback of all time? And though I would love to say Steve Young because he's my favorite quarterback, he's definitely not the greatest of all time. He's up there, but he's not the greatest of all time. Though I don't want to say Tom Brady, I think I have to, but it seems anathema to be able to say that. He's probably the greatest of all time. Without a doubt, without any question whatsoever, we all know who the GOAT is for basketball. And I know that there are some of you in this room that would disagree. You're wrong. We've had this conversation before. It's Michael Jordan, and you know it. <laughs> Repent, hurry up, bow the knee. It's Michael Jordan. When I was a, a kid growing up watching Michael Jordan play, there was a commercial that was running, it seemed like every single time uh, I would turn on the TV, I would see the commercial of, I want to be like Mike. Do you guys remember that commercial? I want to be like Mike. Be like Mike. If you were to say, I want to be like someone in the scriptures, obviously other than Jesus, right? He's the answer to everything. He's always the want to answer. He's the answer to that question. Who do you want to be like? It's Jesus. Other than him. Who would Jesus point to and say, be like that person? 
In Luke chapter 7, verse 28, he said, there is no one greater born of a woman than John the Baptist. There's no one greater than him. If we were going to ask who is the goat of evangelism, who's the greatest of all time in the, the lifetime of Jesus Christ to point others to him, I think it would be John the Baptist. And so I want to introduce Christmas and the Savior and the Messiah of Christmas by introducing the one who introduced Jesus. I want us to stare at John and listen to his testimony and learn from his testimony. Learn from his witness. Ask ourselves, are we like him? And what must we be and what must we do if we're going to be faithful evangelists in this Christmas season and beyond? So let's read together. John chapter 1, verses 19 down to verse 37. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent him to priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him then, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, I am not. And they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and they said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or not Elijah or not the prophet? And John answered, to, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming to him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I've seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples who heard him speak followed Jesus. Father, we are privileged this morning to open your word together as a church family, to study Holy Scripture, to listen to you speak to us from your Holy Word. What a privilege to gather and Father, to hear the testimony of this man, John the Baptist, and to see in him exactly a picture of what we want to be. To see him do exactly what we want to do. 
Father, I pray that we would be absolutely humbled this morning and walk out of here with a greater awareness of our sin and our need for Jesus so that we would be like John the Baptist who says, it's not me that you should follow. It's Christ. Look to him. Behold him. Follow him. God, I thank you for the grace that you give even as we study your word. We don't know what we should be praying for and your spirit enables us to pray the way we should pray and prays for us what we should be praying. And so too, when we come to your word, we don't know exactly what we should be looking for. And we would never be able to see apart from the spirit opening our eyes to behold these things. So we, we pray as we pray every Lord's day, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we behold wonderful things from your law. And may Christ Bible Church be invigorated with the grace and the energy that enabled John the Baptist to do the ministry that he was called to do. May we minister and live out the calling that you've given to us as a church corporately and as individuals. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 37, just gives us a picture of John the Baptist. And if you want to be a faithful evangelist and you want to be a faithful disciple maker and you want to be someone like John who prepares the way for others to follow Christ, then we will see five different aspects of who you must be and what you must do. Five different things looking at John that will enable you to be a faithful evangelist. Before we dive into them, verses 1 through 18 of John's gospel are a theological prologue. They're very theological. They're not historical narrative. We start the historical narrative in verse 19. And actually, verses 19 all the way through chapter 2, verse 11, narrates one whole week in Jesus' earthly life. Day 1 is John's testimony regarding Jesus in verses 19 through 28. You can see this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent these, uh, when the priests and the Levites sent these Jews to ask him, who are you? And then the next day, if you go down to verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him. And then verse 35 is the third day. Again, the next day Jesus was standing there. Verse 43 is, or verse 40 is the next day. One of the two who heard him speak, they they say, we found him and we're going to go talk to our other friends and our brothers and bring them over here. And then verse 43, the next day he goes. And so on and on it goes into the wedding at Cana that we have an entire week before us of Jesus's earthly ministry. So we are now entering into, we've left the theological prologue in verses 1 through 18, and we're entering into the historical narrative of verses 19 on through the rest of the book. It's very interesting, actually, just, again, by way of introduction. If you go to the synoptic gospels, you remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're synoptic, synoptic, sin means the same, like synonym, optic means to see, synoptic seeing the same thing. The synoptic gospels are all looking at the same events. They're almost all identical in what events they're covering. They're covering them from different vantage points, but they're looking at the same events. John is not. John is not a synoptic. He's writing later. He's writing probably in the 80s, late 80s. He's writing a a later document, these earlier gospels written in circulation. They're already going around. John knows that. John wants to fill in the gaps of places that these synoptic gospels didn't cover. And so Matthew, for instance, if you were to go to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4 deals with the temptations of Jesus. And then right after the temptation in verse 11, Jesus goes right to Galilee and starts his earthly ministry. And every synoptic does this. Matthew 4 does this. Mark chapter uh, 1 does this. Luke does this as well. 
every synoptic goes straight from the temptations of Jesus right into his uh, Galilean ministry. But John fills that out. You could actually put John chapters 1 through 4 right in between Matthew 4, 11 and 12, right in between Matthew chapter 4 with the temptation and the beginning of the great Galilean ministry. It's an eight-month to a year period of time that fits there from John 1 to 4. And John's presuming that his readers have already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so he's giving them a fuller picture of the earthly ministry of Christ. If you only have the synoptic gospels, you would think that Jesus' earthly ministry was about a year and a half long. But with John, we know that his ministry was about three and a half years long. And so here we are in John chapter 1, right after the temptations. We're around 29 AD, six weeks before this account, in verse 19 through 37, Jesus had been baptized by John. And John had been preaching for about a year at this point. You remember John? You remember he was a, a crazy wild man. He ate locusts. He uh, ate wild honey. He wore camel's hair. He took a Nazarite vow. He was so otherworldly. He was wildly popular because he was so different. And his boldness attracted thousands of people to come hear him and listen to him, including Herod. Even Herod decides, this is Herod Antipas, he decides to come listen to him. He decides to come out and to hear him and to see him and wants to believe and wants to follow, but decides not to and then ultimately ends his life very poorly. Matthew chapter 3 verse 5 says that all Jerusalem and all Judea and the surrounding area went out to see John. He was captivating. He lived life in such a way that he made people a little bit uneasy, but they had to see what was going on. And so we'll pick up the story in verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews, uh, that word Jews is not just speaking of an ethnic group. It's used 70 times in the Gospel of John. It's not primarily focusing on their ethnicity. It's almost always being used by John to identify the enemies of Jesus. In fact, I would say it's probably always used. There's one question mark in John chapter 8 of maybe a, a time where the word Jew is not used to speak of an enemy of Christ. But these are the religious leaders, the enemies of Jesus and you can see they were sent to him by the priests and the Levites. That's the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem. And we're also told in verse 24 that the Pharisees had sent him. The, the religious leaders said, who is this guy? We need to know who he is. We need to be told, you know, where's your union card? Show us. Are you a part of our religious sect? Are you part of our religious gathering? Who are you? Who are you? The Jews are asking this question. Because John is gaining so much attention, so much notoriety, and they have to figure out who this guy is. Masses of people are flocking to him to see who he is, and so they need to identify, who are you? And that really brings us to our first point. If you want to be like John, and you want to be a faithful ambassador of Christ, an eyewitness testimony, like, like John sees the glory of God and says, I, I have to tell you, I, I've gotten a commission from God and I have to tell you, you and I have been commissioned by God, and we have to go tell. So if we're going to do that faithfully, number one, we need to live compellingly. Live compellingly. Live your life in a captivating way so that people cannot look at your life and say, you're no different than the world. Live compellingly. John lived his life in such a way that people could not leave him alone. They had to figure out, who are you? What are you doing? What's going on? Now, I'm not suggesting that we all wear camel's hair and eat locusts and wild honey and go out to the wilderness somewhere. 
I'm suggesting that we take the principle of the way that John lived his life and apply that principle to our lives in such a way that our lives live differently than the world. They look differently. They feel differently. This is what we studied a few weeks ago in 1 John chapter 3. For this reason, the world does not understand you because they didn't understand him who was sent. They don't understand God, so they're not going to understand God's kids. We studied this in our discipleship book. Mark Dever talked about the life, truth, life principle. He says it this way, quote, your life should attract people to listen to you. Your life should be lived in such a way that it's compelling people to listen to your testimony. Your teaching should then work for their transformation, and their transformed lives should then illustrate what you taught, which in turn attracts people to listen to them. Life, truth, life. Now, most of the compellingness of the way that we live our lives is who we are versus what we do. But who you are will spill out into what you do and will radically change the way that you live every day. You think about the Old Testament. Think about figures in the Old Testament who live this way. Think about Daniel and his friends. We can't follow the diet that you're asking us to follow, king. Can't bow down, king. So sorry, we can't do that. We need to follow God. You think about the way that they live their lives. I'm sorry, I'm not going to stop praying. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray in such a way where everybody sees me. I get thrown in the lion's den. That's okay. I'm going to live my life in a way where people have to notice. They see God's at work. Think about Esther going before the king. If I die, I die. But I'm, I am here for such a time as this, and I'm going to make my life count. Think about David with Goliath. I'm going to trust the promises of God, and even though I'm small and even though I'm young, I'm going to do something uh, for the name of God, for the glory of God, and you cannot get around me. You have to at least understand that I'm coming on behalf of God in his name. Often it's not well received. You think about Noah declaring to people, hey, there's going to be a flood, there's going to be rain, there's going to be a flood, you're all going to die, and everybody does not believe. But live in such a way that your life just simply doesn't make sense to believers or to non-believers. Live in such a way where they look at you and they think, who are you? What are you doing? That'd be my first question to us. Do you live for what the world lives for? Do you look like the world? Do you love what the world loves? Are your affections what the world's affections are? Or do people look at you and see there's something different about the way you live? There's a lot of different ways that we could do this, that we could live in a compelling way. There's a lot of different ways that we can look radically different than the world. Let me just give you one. Let me give you just one. Are you known for and characterized by joy? Are you known for and characterized by joy? If God is really sovereign and in control of every detail in the world, if he is in control of every, every molecule in the universe, if God is sovereign on his throne and we know that we win in the end, then we should be the happiest, most joyful, most content, most confidently assured people in the world. We should be. And yet... I see Christians claim the name of Christ and look just as worried, just as fearful as the world around them. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones said it here. If all Christians were as happy as it is their duty to be, there would be no resisting the spread of a faith so visibly rich in power and blessing. There would be no stopping the spread of that faith if we were as joyful and happy as God has called us to be? Is your life a compelling, captivating example to others of 
following a sovereign God. John's was. That's why people go out to him. That's why everyone's flocking to him. That's why the religious leaders have to start berating him with questions. This leads to point number two. If we're going to be like John, John lived compellingly, and we should as well. Number two, we need to live with clarity. We need to live with clarity. So these Jews are sent to John the Baptist, and they ask him a simple question, who are you? Who are you? And inherent in that question of verse 19, because of what John's going to say, I'm not the Christ, inherent in that question is, are you the Christ? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one or king. Are you the Messiah? They're going to ask him really three questions. They're going to ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? And are you the prophet? We'll talk about these. Are you the Messiah? First century Israel was rife with messianic expectation. Messiah is going to come. He's going to be here. He's going to save us from our political oppressors. We long for him. O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel, right? They would have sung that song. Uh, God, send us the Messiah to ransom us away from our captors. And there were many false messiahs. There were many people that would say, I'm a messiah, I'm a messiah. You remember when Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and said, just jump off, jump off the, the pinnacle of the temple, jump off and an angel will catch you. That's not just taken out of context. This is not just a random example. That's something that uh, pretender messiahs used to do back then. There were people that would say to Israel, hey, guys, I'm the messiah. I was sent by God. I'm the guy that's going to save us. And watch, I'll show you. I'll prove it to you. I'm going to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, and I'm not going to die. And they would jump off, and they'd die. Guess that guy's not the messiah, right? Well, let's look for the next one. This happened even when I lived in Israel uh, for a semester back in my college years. There were billboards for messiahs, kind of like we would have on our television, you know, this, this ad paid for by such and such a political person. They had billboards for such and such a person is the Messiah. Vote for him to be king, the political ruler in Israel. And when I was there, there was a billboard that we used to drive by as we'd go into Jerusalem, and there was a guy, this huge beard, Jewish man, I'm the Messiah. And while I was there, that guy died. And literally, as we're driving back into Jerusalem one day, billboards changed. <laughs> we're not, not expecting that guy to be Messiah anymore. So first century Israel was just rife with this expectation of Messiah is going to come. And so the Jews are asking, are you another one of these pretender messiahs? Are you another one of these, John, John are you a, a pretender messiah? And so you can see his answer. He confessed and did not deny but confessed. That's clunky in my translation. That's legal terminology. That's uh, tantamount to what we would say, uh, to tell the truth, you swear to tell the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what he's doing. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is a legal testimony. I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Verse 21, second question. Okay, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? This is a question from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Elijah was promised to come before the Messiah, he's going to be the forerunner. The Messiah has to have a forerunner, a herald to announce his coming. Elijah's going to be that herald. And so, John, are you Elijah? Now, technically speaking, John isn't Elijah because he's John. John's not Elijah, he's John. At the same time, there's a little bit of a confusion here because the disciples asked Jesus this very question after the transfiguration. Remember, Jesus is taken up on the mountain, the transfigured Moses and Elijah show up. Uh, Peter, James, and John walk back down the mountain, and they say, Jesus, we think you're the Messiah, but there's one question hanging over our heads. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are telling us you're not the Messiah because Elijah was not your forerunner. 
And Jesus' answer is, well, it didn't have to be physical, literal Elijah. It was one who was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That is John the Baptist. If you would have received him, he would have fulfilled that prophecy. Because you rejected him, Elijah is yet to come. That's even what we've looked at, the two witnesses in Revelation. There are are forerunners that are yet to come to announce the coming of Christ a second time. But very specifically, I think that John, he knows what they're asking as far as, are you the forerunner? But he's going to take this in a very shrewd way and say, I'm not Elijah. My name is John. My dad's Zechariah. My name is not Elijah. I'm not Elijah. Then they ask him, are you the prophet? The prophet, definite article, the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet. This is uh, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, God says that I will raise up a prophet for you like Moses, but better than Moses. And that is the prophet who some thought he was going to be the forerunner, some thought he was going to be the Messiah. And so they're saying, are you that prophet, the prophet prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15? By the way, Jesus is that prophet. Jesus is, uh, Peter calls Jesus that prophet in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. Uh, Stephen says that he is that prophet from Deuteronomy 18 in Acts chapter 7, verse 37. So they all identify Jesus is that prophet. And so when the Jews say, John, are you that prophet? John says, I'm not. I'm not the prophet. Three times, three questions, three answers. I am not. You remember The Gospel of John is filled with seven very profound I am statements of Jesus. Remember, you could divide the book of John up into those I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the great shepherd. All these different I am statements. Here we have three I am not statements. John is most concerned about what he is not. Verse 8, all the way back in verse 8. John, the gospel writer, says John the Baptist was not the light. He's not the light. He came to testify about the light. He came to testify about Jesus, but he's not Jesus. Verse 20, John says, I'm not the Christ. Verse 21, I'm not Elijah. Verse 21, I'm not the prophet. Verse 27, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's why I say this is living with clarity. Living with clarity means that you know who you are and who you're not. We're not the Christ. There is only one Jesus, praise God, and we aren't him. Functionally, to our shame, we act like him all the time, right? We place ourselves as savior to our friends, as hope to our neighbors, as Messiah to the world. But there's only one Messiah. Living with clarity means you know who you are and who you're not. Living with clarity also means you know exactly who God is. You know exactly who God is. The Jews back then thought that Messiah was going to be a political ruler. He's going to come. He's going to save them from their Roman oppressors. And though we can look down on them all we want, I think we do the exact same thing with Jesus. We look at Jesus and we think, there's something we want out of you. There's something that we want you to give to us. And we think God would work best if he did this. But living with clarity means you know this book, and this book tells you who God is, and so you destroy all of your preconceived ideas about the best kind of God you can think of and go, no, God is God. He's on the throne, and he is the best God. He's the only God, and he is worthy of our affections. Would you say the same thing as John? 
Don't focus on me. I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not that. I know who I am, and those aren't it. Relationships aren't the Christ. Pastors aren't your Savior. Family isn't your salvation. Jesus shouldn't be pointing to us and saying, look at them. We always should be pointing to him and say, look to Christ. Live with clarity. Live with Psalm 115, verse 11 in your heart. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. Not to us, but to your name. So if you want to be like John, you need to live compellingly. Number two, you need to live with clarity. Number three, you need to live commissioned. You need to live knowing that you have been commissioned by God. You need to live on commission as an ambassador of Christ. Verse 22, finally, after the three attempts, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? They say, okay, fine. Just tell us who you are then. We're going to stop asking questions. Tell us who you are. This is like when my wife says, would you like macaroni and cheese for dinner? I say, no. Would you like spaghetti for dinner? No. Would you like chili for dinner? No. Okay, fine. You tell me what you want, right? I'm going to stop asking you and giving you ideas. You tell me what you want. Let's just stop. You tell me. That's what they're saying. Fine. We're done. Who are you? Verse 22. Who are you? And notice they put inside of this, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? You better make this good, John, because we have a higher authority that you need to answer to because we answer to. And John could easily have said, uh, I have a higher authority than who you're answering to. Pharisees sent you. God sent me. I went, right? And they say, what do you say about yourself? I think there is such condescension in that phrase. <laughs> what do you say about yourself? Kind of like when a, a parent says to their kid, what do you have to say for yourself? Look what you just did. What do you have to, tell me what you did. Why did you do that? John, with staggering clarity, says, I am a voice. I'm a voice. That's all I am. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. And I'm not the prophet. I'm just a voice. Reminds me of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, I am the least of all saints. I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. It's almost like in their condescension of saying, you're a nobody. You need to tell us who we are because we're somebodies and we need to go tell even higher authorities than you. You're a nobody. It's like John holds on to that and goes, yeah, I'm just a nobody. I'm just a voice. I am, I'm a nobody. Don't look to me. What could John have said? Who are you? Who do you think you are? John could have easily said, well, I'm a prophet. Matthew 21, verse 26 tells us that everybody knew him to be sent by God as a prophet. Could have said, I came from a priestly family that was not involved in corruption. I lived completely separate from the religious corruption of the day. Could say, I was that guy whose birth was prophesied by an angel. Did that happen to you? I didn't think so. His birth was miraculous. I was born to really, really, really old people. I was born to really, really old people. I love how Luke describes it. We read it last week. Elizabeth is barren. And then it says, and they're both advanced in years and old. <laughs> they're just old. John says, hey, it was impossible, and I was born miraculously. John was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in the womb. 
could have said that. Hey, did you have the Holy Spirit while you were in the womb? No. He doesn't say any of those things. He just says, I'm a voice. I am a nobody. I am just doing what God sent me to do. It's like Luke chapter 17, verse 10. Remember the parable of the servants that come at the end of the day to get their uh, payment? And they just say, hey, we're, we're not looking for Thanksgiving. We're not looking for people to be uh, thankful for what we've done. Because at the end of the day, when we've done all we've been told to do, we're still just slaves doing what we've been told to do. We're just voices. What do we have in common with John? We have been commissioned just like John. We've been given the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We've been commissioned to be a voice. We're a voice too. John says, I'm a voice. He's a very specific voice. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, which describes the job of the forerunner to, to make the high places down, level the high places and, and fill up the potholes in the, the road and make it a level uh, ground for the king to come. He's not out there with a bulldozer, so what is he doing as he's crying in the wilderness, making the way of the Lord straight? What is he doing? This is all spiritually speaking. The low places in our hearts, they're sinful, debased things. The high places are places of pride and self-righteousness. The, the crooked, perverse, unrighteous, sinful places in our heart. The rough ground that doesn't want to be changed, it's stubborn, and it needs the Holy Spirit to break it up. That's what he says. I'm crying in the wilderness. What does a wilderness have? It just has death, right? That's what a wilderness has. No life, just death. And he says, that's where I am preaching the gospel. I'm just sharing in spiritual darkness. We're a voice just like him, speaking into the darkness, into the vacuum of silence. John's task was to clear away obstacles that keep people from coming to Jesus. And we've been commissioned to do the same thing. What about you? If you were given this question, if somebody asked you, who are you? Who are you? If you were given this spotlight, what would you say? I think often we look to our achievements, our accomplishments. Maybe it was some athletic achievement. Maybe it's your economic status. Maybe it's your academic accomplishments. Maybe it's your job. How often when given a chance to talk about him, do we talk about us? If you have John's attitude, then you'd simply say, I'm nobody. Who are you? I'm nobody. He's everybody. He's everything. He's all you need. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody. That's all I do. I just want you to know Jesus, which is a stark contrast to the Pharisees who sent these Jews because the Pharisees were experts in self-promotion. Look at me. Look at how awesome I am. John says, I'm a nobody. I don't want popularity. I live out in the wilderness with the wild animals. Just be a voice. This is all ministry is, by the way. All ministry is, is being a voice. The words we say, they're not about us. They're the, the words of God being ministered to people's hearts. So do you live knowing that you've been commissioned by God? Do you live knowing that God has commissioned you and you live as an ambassador of Christ, always with his name on your lips ready to share? Brothers and sisters, every single question that you're ever asked is an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Every question that you're asked is an opportunity to talk about Jesus. What do you do for work? That's a question that can get you to Jesus. What's your favorite sports team? That's a question that can get you to Jesus. 
What food do you most enjoy? That's a question that can get you to Jesus. Every single question that anyone ever asks you, you should have the goal in mind to move through it and to get to Christ. Make little of yourself and make much of him. John was poor in spirit because he wanted to point to the one who was rich. John was lowly and humble because he wanted to lift up the exalted one. John was just a voice to point to the word of God. So if we want to be like John, we need to live compellingly. We need to live with clarity. We need to live on commission. We have been commissioned by God as ambassadors. We need to live commissioned. Number four, if we're going to be like John, we need to live contentedly humble. Humble, yes, but not angry in that humility. We need to live content in our humiliation. This is verses 24 down to verse 28. They had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, and they said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, and if you're not the prophet? Again, they're doubling down on belittling John. If you're a nobody, then why are you out here doing anything? Why are you doing anything? Because you're nothing. You're not significant. You're not important. Nobody cares about you. Nobody's been waiting for you. You're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. And you're not the prophet. You're nobody. So why are you doing anything? Again, he could have easily said, no, time out. I'm somebody. I'm somebody. But he says, I'm fine with being a nobody. You're right. I'm a nobody. John answered and says, I baptize with water. But among you stands one whom you don't know. And he is the one who comes after me. The thong of whose sandal, I'm not even unworthy. I'm not even worthy to t untie. I can't even open it up. I can't even take that sandal off. I'm unworthy. He's saying, you're focusing on me baptizing. You're focusing on the wrong guy. I'm a nobody. I use water to baptize. There's a guy coming that uses the Holy Spirit to get to the heart He's going to deal with the real issues. Get past the preacher and get on to the one of whom the preacher speaks. John has such an amazing posture of humility. He's, I'm just a normal dude. I'm not even worthy to untie a sandal. To quote a rabbi on the master-student relationship, a master, a, a, a rabbi, a teacher, and his students, he says this, a teacher should receive gifts from his students, and a student should be in so, uh, su such a service to his master that he should do everything except untie his sandals. He should be willing to do anything except that. That's way too menial a task for him to do. It's dirty. It's gross. John says, I'm not even worthy to do the lowest task. I'm not even worthy to do that. You know, the one who is... The worthy one, the Messiah, the Son of God, he would untie 12 sandals, his disciples in the upper room, and wash their feet. Are you content with being humble? You are humble. We are all nobodies. But are you happy with that? Are you content with that? Are you fine to say, I'm a nobody, and I love being a nobody because I get to point to somebody? Hudson Taylor, who was greatly used by God to form China Inland Mission and, and to get missionaries from here over to China, from England over to China. When complimented on founding the China Inland Mission, somebody asked him this question, what does it feel like 
to be so used of God? How would you answer that question? What does it feel like? Hudson Taylor, you have been so greatly used by God. Look at all that you've accomplished in the name of God. How does that feel? He answered, it seemed to me that God had looked over the whole world to find a man who is weak enough to do his work. And when at last he found me, he said, he's weak enough, he'll do. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on him always being with them. I'm a nobody. I've got a somebody who's always with me. And I want to teach you and tell you about him. How do you think about yourself? Do you enjoy highlighting your human weakness? Do you, en do you enjoy highlighting what you're not good at? What is true humility? One author has said, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of others as more important than yourselves, as Philippians 2 says. How often do you highlight others in conversation? If you want to be like John, you are going to, with every opportunity that people give for you to talk about you, you're going to deflect that and talk about God. And start by talking with others about others. True humility is as easy as directing the conversation to the other person who's talking to you to ask how they're doing instead of talking about how you're doing. Highlight others. Point others to Christ. Listen to their needs and point them to Jesus as often as you can. He says, I am not worthy. I'm a nobody. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing that's the Jordan River. I love how one commentator says it. Why was, verse 28, why are we told that John the Baptist is at the Jordan River? Because it needed to be a river because John wasn't a Presbyterian. So he's actually baptizing people all the way. He's not sprinkling them. The beauty of what John does, he says, I want to be used by Jesus. I want to be used by the Lamb of God to point others to him. I'm content with being humble, with being humiliated. Finally, point number five. Not only are we to live compellingly, if we want to be like John, we're going to live with clarity. We're going to live a commissioned life. We're going to live contentedly humble. But finally, number five, if you want to be like John, you are going to live every moment of your life to point to Christ. You're going to live every moment of your life to point to Christ. It's all about Christ. Live for Christ. Do what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Life is all about Jesus. And death is all about getting more of him. This is verses 29 through the end of our section in verse 37. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's my purpose, John would say. My purpose is just to point to Jesus. And you, you see him, we found him, follow him. This is the one on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I. He existed before me. He lived before me. He's God. I'm not. I didn't recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. I love that. I didn't recognize him growing up. He knew who Jesus was. They're cousins after all. But he didn't recognize him. And he must have been waiting year after year, wondering when is Messiah going to show up? When's my cousin going to do the job that God has sent him to do? Maybe in those early years, wondering with doubts. Is he ever going to show up? 
I didn't know who he was. We know that even after Jesus is baptized by John, when John the Baptist is thrown into prison, he sends some of his followers back to Jesus to say, are you really the Christ? With doubt, wondering, are you really the Christ? I'm in prison, Rome's still in control, the Herods are just running rampant. He says, I didn't know who he was, but I have seen the Spirit, verse 32, descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize. So God told me, the one who sent me to baptize him, he's the one who said, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So when John baptizes Jesus, he says, this is the guy. I myself have seen, I have testified that this is the Son of God. And again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And in the white space there, he's, he's telling his disciples, Go follow Jesus. Be Jesus' disciple, not mine. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And John the Baptist is ecstatic that he's losing followers because he knows that they're going to follow Jesus. This is the beauty of living for Christ. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's not about my desires, my wants, my needs. It's just about making much of Christ. Living the most satisfied life we could possibly live means making every moment all about Jesus and finding your greatest joy in Him. You can get off of yourself and put all of your joy and satisfaction in Christ. So live compellingly, live with clarity, live commissioned, live contentedly humble, and live every moment of your life to point people to Christ. In the flow of these three days that we've looked at, day one, John the Baptist simply says, he's here. I baptized him right after Jesus was baptized. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. He comes back. He's here. I don't know where he is. I baptized him 40 days ago. He's here somewhere. Day two, I found him. Behold him. Behold the Lamb of God. There he is. Day three, follow him. I've done my job. My job is just to point out who Jesus is. Follow him. The whole point of John's ministry, leave me, follow Christ. So for us this morning, how are we to receive this? As the hearers of this message, of this testimony of John, we must listen to his testimony. He's saying, there's the Lamb of God. It's not me. I'm not the guy. There's the guy. Follow him. And so you this morning have to decide, are you going to listen to John's testimony? Is John the Baptist, a prophet sent by God, who's declaring to you this morning, Jesus is the one that you need to follow? Is the testimony of John inspired, inerrant, infallible? Do we have exactly what God wants us to have about John's testimony such that we can take this to the bank and say, money back guarantee, Jesus is all I need. Why does Christmas exist? Why did God become flesh? He became flesh so that he could die to take away the sin of the world. Do you believe the message that John proclaimed? There are high places in our prideful hearts that need to be leveled. There are low places of sin and of perversion that need to be uh, completely redone and remade. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And only the blood of the Lamb of God can remove our sin. As hearers, we need to receive this message for what it is, a message sent by God. Jesus is the Lamb. Follow Him. 
as proclaimers, we need to take our cue from John. That's the whole point of this message. As proclaimers, we need to live like John lived, act like John act, speak like John spoke. And to, to really narrow down those three, the, the five points into three, just really easy points to understand. If we want to be like John, we've got to know who Jesus is. You have to know who Jesus is or else you're not going to point people to him. You have to know that Jesus is the Lamb of God and you have to know who you are. You have to know that you're not worthy. You're not worthy even to un- untie the sandals that Jesus is wearing. Again, this is countercultural to the way that we live our lives. I think most people would say, oh, poor John. Man, what a self-esteem problem John has, right? You are worthy, buddy. Stand up. You're fine. I think most people would say, John needs to understand how amazing he is. And I would say, no, we need to understand how prideful we are. We are such prideful people. Humble yourself. Know the reality of how unworthy you are. And then, if you know Jesus, you know who he is, you know how unworthy you are, then you get to live every moment for Christ. Pointing everyone to the one who gives you worth, who loves you and died for you. What's the message that we preach? What's the message we proclaim? It's just as easy as the one sentence in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's our message. Look to Christ. Behold him. Savor him. Adore him. Love him. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. He was sent by the Father. You remember Lamb of God. That's the title that John calls Jesus. Uh, Most people back then would have thought, behold, the Messiah of God, right? The King sent by God. And yes, Jesus is the Messiah. But what John the Baptist focuses on is the sacrificial nature of Jesus coming to earth. Remember, Jesus is called the lamb going all the way back to the Old Testament sacrifices of the lamb who was slain, the the lambs that were slain on behalf of the people. And you remember in the Exodus, that, that lamb who was slain and then the The blood was put on the doorposts of the house for the angel of death to pass over. Something needs to die. Either you're going to die, your firstborn's going to die, or a lamb's going to die in their place. Something needs to die. Is there blood here? If there's not blood here, something's going to die in your house. If there's blood here, something's already died. Remember, who was responsible for finding the lamb in the flock, the, the spotless, without blemish lamb, and pluck it out of the flock and take it into the home and show the family. Who was responsible? It was the father's job. The father finds the lamb, the father takes the lamb, the father gives the lamb. The father says, this is the lamb that's going to take away our sin. So too, Jesus Christ was sent by our heavenly father, handpicked by our heavenly father, spotless, without blemish, without sin, offered to us, put in our midst, made his tabernacle among us, as John says earlier in John chapter 1. And God the Father says, this is the Lamb who's going to take away our sin. It's going to take away the sin of the world. Kent Hughes says it this way, the Lamb is our eternal message. The encounter between Abraham and Isaac prophesied his sacrifice. The Passover applied the principles of his sacrifice. Isaiah 53 personified his sacrifice. John 1 identifies his sacrifice, and his sacrifice is magnified in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 14. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. This is the essence of our message. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When we see people so confused, if there's even truth in the world, 
and no idea what the way is, and unsure if there's even any meaning in life at all, we tell them that Jesus is the answer to all of those questions. Father, we thank you for your word that points us to a man, but the man points us to the Savior. God, thank you so much for John the Baptist. I cannot wait to meet him in heaven and talk with him about all that he lived through, all that he faced, and how he did it with such joy, contentedly humble. I am a nobody. Don't follow me, follow Christ. God, I pray for CBC that we would always be a church that would say, don't follow us, don't listen to us, listen to Christ. We're just a voice pointing people to the word. And Father, we have the distinct privilege of, of seeing that tangibly, visibly represented this morning as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion. This profound reality of the lamb being slain, even that Passover supper to remember the lamb that was, was killed on behalf of those that needed to die, that should have died, but now could survive because of the Lamb's substitutionary death. Jesus, you, you said, I will gladly take their place. I will gladly die their death. I will gladly bear their penalty so that they could go free. They could be forgiven. And even more than that, they could be reconciled to the Father who loves them and who gave Jesus for them. So, Father, may we behold the Lamb as we sing. May we behold the Lamb as we partake of communion. May we behold the Lamb with one another as we respond by faith to say, I'm a nobody. Jesus is everything. And I just want to point everyone I know to him. May we do that even this morning as we point each other to the reality of the sacrifice made. Through these elements, we can see the reminder that the sacrifice has already been made once for all. It's finished at the cross. So prepare our hearts now as we sing. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.